Let's just pray before we're seated and ask God to speak to us through his word. And so, Father, we commit ourselves now to the hearing of the word and then the implementing and doing of it as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, we ask, asking you to help us to hear and to receive and to change through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As many of you know who know me that there was a very impacting time in my life that uh, during my uh, Bible college years, I used to go to Alaska and work in the summertime, and I, I worked there for a crusty old uncle of mine who was kind of a sourdough um, trapper, man of uh, uh, many abilities, and he was mainly a bush pilot and, and ran an air taxi business in a little village called Imanic, Alaska, on the middle mouth of the Yukon. And at this time in his life, he was in his 60s, and he really appreciated having a 19, 20-year-old guy there to do his heavy lifting. My Uncle Bud was a remarkable man who um, had a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience, a lot of life experience. He was one of those guys that if you downloaded his brain into a set of encyclopedias, it would be a, a vast set of encyclopedias. And one day my aunt, he had married my mom's youngest sister and they had uh, six kids. And my Aunt Shirley and the kids were gone and, and um, my Uncle Bud was there flying and working the business and I was there assisting him and we had a rainy day and so he was snoozing at home, he couldn't fly and he was uh, laid back in his lazy boy chair snoozing and I decided that I wanted to make a banana cream pie and um, my Uncle Bud could tell me how to make a banana cream pie out of his head and so half asleep, laid back in his lazy boy chair, and he always wore a cowboy hat, and his hat tilted over his eye. He mumbled out of the side of his mouth and told me what to do to make this banana cream pie. So I worked my way through. I wanted meringue. That's the right word, isn't it? Meringue on top, that, that foamy stuff. And I, he talked me through, and I made my pie, and it, it just didn't turn out. So later, Uncle Bud, I still ate it. We ate, he ate half and I ate half. And he got up and he said, well, didn't you separate the yolks from the whites? And I said, no. He said, I told you to separate the yolks from the whites. You can't make meringue with yolks in the eggs. And he said, it really matters. And I found out that it really matters when you leave the yolk in, in, in the white to make meringue. It really matters. Will you say that with me? It really matters. It really matters. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22 because we're going to have an answer to the third question that we're dealing with here of three questions in a row. We've answered two of them last week. Jesus answered them. We looked at his answers. This week, the third answer, and we're going to receive from our Lord something that really, really matters. He's going to talk to the heart of our Christianity. This is an interesting season in our Lord's life. Um, let me remind you once again, as I have regularly, that as we walk through Matthew all of this time in chapter 22, we now find ourselves on Tuesday or Wednesday of the Passion Week. Now, Friday night of this week, he will be betrayed by Judas and he'll be on the cross by Thursday night and Friday night. He'll go to the cross and go to the garden and all of that. That's just a couple days away. He has been viciously accosted by the Pharisees as a result of him cleansing the temple. In response to their arrogance and their hatred to him, he has turned to them and he has told three stories in a row. 
Um, and it gets us into chapter 22. Those three parables were very powerful and very affrontive, very confrontive. It was a poke in the eye to the Pharisees. They have backed up completely understanding and knowing that he has been accusing them of rejecting the Christ. They have backed up. They've gone behind closed doors. They've reconsidered. And now they come back out on the same day that he told them the three parables. Those were the three messages that Dr. Shupi preached. He, they come back now with three questions. The first of two of the three, the first two of the three we have dealt with. The first one, they were trying to get him in trouble with the Roman government. They have asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus simply, simply asked them to hold up a coin. On the coin is the image of Tiberius Caesar. And because on that coin, Tiberius Caesar had minted blasphemous sayings about himself, that he was the Lord, that he was the Son of God. Um, it was actually um, a, a emperor worship is what he was holding up. The Pharisees, when they asked him about paying taxes to Rome, expected him to potentially say no because of the blasphemous slogan minted on the coin and even the idolatrous image of Tiberius Caesar on the denarius. They hated this poll tax. It represented one day's wage. And every year the, the Jews had to pay it to Rome who governed over them. But Jesus looks at them and says, whose picture's on the coin? They say Caesar. He says, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. In other words, be quiet and pay your taxes. But then he goes on a step further, poking them further in the eye, reminding them that they are created in the image of God, that everything they have is from God and that everything about them is God's. And he says, what is God's? Give to God. In other words, give yourself to God. So they were hoping that he would say, don't pay your taxes and be found in insubordination to the government of Rome and possibly be prosecuted for that, even crucified on a cross for that. That didn't work. So then they send the Sadducees over there to him. The Sadducees, remember, don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the life after uh, this were earth. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the spirit world. They come to him not with a politically charged question or a charge, uh, a question that would get him in trouble with the government, but they come at him with a theological question trying to show him that the resurrection was a ludicrous doctrine. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Jesus himself had taught that he was the resurrection and the life. He had said at least three different times that he would rise from the dead. They had heard these things and they were trying to undermine his own teaching and make him uh, duplicitous or speaking out of both sides of his mouth if they could show him that there was no resurrection from the dead. And to do that, they took the teaching from Deuteronomy 25 on the Leverite law that Moses had taught. And that was that if a woman was married to a husband and her husband died, and if he had brothers, he was to marry her so that she could have a son potentially and name him after her first husband so that his lineage would go on in the nation of Israel and receive in future generations the blessing of God. It was very important to them. And so the Sadducees come to Jesus with this made up bogus question. That was our second question last week. And, and the question was, well, what if her husband dies? And then they go and proceed with this crazy story that he has six more brothers and all of them die. And then it's like, if there's a resurrection and all seven of the men are there in the resurrection, whose wife shall, will she be? See, there's no way that Moses would command something that would, that could, that could end up not working out in the future. It's obvious proof that there is no resurrection because it's too complicated and it couldn't work. Jesus looks at him and says, you're ignorant. You don't know the scriptures. 
And that's the worst thing you could say to a Sadducee. And he goes on to show them that marriage isn't the same in heaven and that we have a new body and that you're thinking like this world, not in the future life. And then there's a third question, and this is the question they're asking. You're going to see that now, okay, so they tried to get him in trouble with the tax question, that maybe he would get arrested by Roman authorities as part of the insurrection or those who would not pay their taxes. They tried to get him to undermine his own theology by saying that there was no resurrection and that didn't work. And now they're going to try to get him on another point of doctrine that has to do with heresy. Let's read our text. We're looking at Matthew chapter 22. We're picking it up at verse 34. And it says, Then when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What a remarkable Q&A session we're listening in on here with our Lord Jesus, and this third one is a point that really matters. First of all, number one, if you're looking at your outline, notice the silence that is emphasized in verse 34. Matthew records that Jesus had shut them down. The New American Standard translates that he had put the Sadducees to silence. That word silence Um, Dr. MacArthur points out in his Matthew commentary, one of five commentaries that I read in preparation, literally means to muzzle, to muzzle or to forcefully restrict the opening of the mouth. It's as though he jammed them shut with his answers. The Pharisees, no doubt, very much enjoyed the Sadducees being shut down on their bogus seven husbands question. And then they regather, and if you'll take the time later to look up Mark chapter 12, you'll find that he adds a little bit of information. But it says they gathered together, they have been silenced, and it now sets us up for the question, and the question is brought by this lawyer. He is an expert in the law, and he asks him a question to test him. This Lawyer is a Pharisee, and he. some of your translations might say an expert in the law. You need to remember that in this era that these Pharisees, these experts in Mosaic law, not only were spiritual leaders with theological expertise and answering people's theological Bible questions, but that that bled over into civil law that the Israelites, the Jews, very much maintained the order of their everyday lives and living with Old Testament law. And so that was part of the question system here, the system of expertise that was needed. And so not only was it a theological expertise that this man demonstrated, but he was part of, the, uh, part of their civil uh, framework of adjudicators so that he could answer everyday questions. And remember that they very much enjoyed lording over the people all of the burdens of the law. We're going to get to that in chapter 23 on the seven woes that that our Lord gives and, and pronounces on the Pharisees. So he was an expert in the law, both theologically and civilly. If you read in Mark's gospel, you're going to find that Mark softens this guy a little bit and it appears that he was in the background watching and Mark says that he recognized that Jesus answered these questions very well. And then he approaches and he potentially um, is serious 
about his question. But let's first of all examine the scheme of the question. Why this question? What is this question all about? Um, why would he ask, what is the greatest of all the laws? Well, you need to know that even from extra-biblical literature, um, we know that the Pharisees worked very hard on defining and organizing and categorizing the law of Moses. They esteemed Moses higher than all other prophets, and they esteemed his writings above the writings of other prophets. After all, he was the one who had brought the Ten Commandments off the mountain. He was the one who had led them out of Israel. He was the one that God said at the end of his life. He was the meekest or most humble of all men. And so they esteemed him. They had a seat in their synagogues called the Seat of Moses, where only the most esteemed teachers would sit. And so Moses was a cut above. And they cared very much about Moses' law. In fact, extra-biblical literature tells us that the rabbis of this day had supposedly determined that there were 613 separate letters in the Hebrew text of the Ten Commandments, which is given in the book of Numbers. It's in Exodus also, but the one in the book of Numbers, they counted 613 letters in the giving of the Ten Commandments there. And so they also recognized 613 separate laws in the Pentateuch. I don't know why they put that together, but that's the way a Pharisee thinks. So 613 letters over here. Let's find 613 laws in the writings of Moses. And then they took those 613 laws and they categorized them into positive Affirmative laws or negative laws. Some were positive, some were negative. They then took both the, uh, the, they took the idea that there were 248 affirmative laws, and that was because that was one affirmative or positive law for every bone in the human body. There's 248 bones in the human body, I guess. And so they said there's 248 affirmative laws of their 613 total laws. And then they said there's 365 negative laws because there's 365 days to the year. So this is the mindset of these Pharisees as they consider the law. And from even from Scripture, but from extra-biblical literature as well, we understand that they often, they love to do this. They love to categorize the law. They love to break it down. They love to, to burden people with all of their rules. And they had all of these rules. And then of their 613 laws, um, however, 248 that were positives, 365 that were negative, they would talk about of those, which ones are heavy laws. They called them heavy laws. They really mattered. And if you violated that law, it was serious before God. Or lighter laws. I assume that's things they like to do. I, I don't know. But they, it, it wasn't quite as serious. And of those, the heavy laws and the light laws. And don't we kind of do that in our Christian life? We got things that really bother us. And then other things, ah, it's not so bad. Well, why isn't it? Well, because I don't think it is. I don't know how they're thinking, but they got their heavy laws, their light laws, their 613 laws, and then they would sit around and they love to debate. Of these laws, which one would you say is most important? And they wanted, that was their, like, their favorite thing to do. What is the most important of all the laws? Now, what we need to understand that Matthew's listening audience would have probably quite readily understood is that what they were looking for is an answer from the law of Moses, none other. And if they could get Jesus and ask him a question, what is the most important law, and he might say something that was outside of Moses, then they could get him for heresy, and heresy required the death penalty. 
And in fact, in a similar manner, aren't they going to put him on the cross for what they consider to be blasphemy? They're going to execute him for blasphemy, for saying he's equal with God or he is God and that he's the son of God. That's blasphemy. Crucify him. And in, the, in a similar way, they wanted him, kind of like in a, in a, middle, a middle, medieval or Middle Ages um, persecution of communities um, where they drowned people for, for, not, for the wrong mode of baptism, where they burned people at the stake. Why? For heresy, what they considered heresy. And they would kill you. And so they were trying to get Jesus in trouble for heresy by speaking against the law of Moses. So let's look at the question. That's the scheme, letter A, on the question, to try to get Jesus to contradict Moses. This, in their minds, looking at our notes, would make Jesus guilty of heresy. We, are, we recognize, then, that the question comes from probably a halfway sincere lawyer. But let's look at the answer now. The answer is in 36 to 39. The question comes in 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. They didn't ask about the second. Jesus connects the two. You shall love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting, isn't it? First of all, I want you to see the source, its source, letter A, the answer that Jesus gives, its source is, is without a beat, without a hiccup, without hesitation, he immediately does what? He quotes Moses. So right away, he diffuses the situation. They want to know what's the most important command? I'll tell you what's the most important command. And immediately he quotes, love God. Number one, love God, that's Deuteronomy 6. You want to know what the most important command is? It's to love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema. Shema means to hear. And that was a very important passage. That's the passage in Deuteronomy 6 where it says the Lord our God is one. Okay, And they would take those verses, memorize them from childhood. They actually wrote that section, Deuteronomy 6 passage, on pieces of paper, put them in little boxes called phylacteries, tied them around their heads so that wherever they went, the Word of God led the way for them. They couldn't get themselves out in front of the Word of God. The Word of God always led the way for them. I guess. You see where it goes when you turn love and faith in God into religion? It almost becomes ludicrous. Well, the, the answer is sourced there in Deuteronomy 6, that love for God. And then love your neighbor, number two, love your neighbor, is in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. These are direct quotes. Jesus is directly quoting Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Mark, in his gospel, will add the word strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. That's straight from Leviticus chapter 19. I want you to observe the scope, though, of his answer. Not only the source of his answer... But the scope of his answer, the scope of his answer, looking at, letting our eyes go to verse 40, first of all, and then we'll back up. But notice that as Jesus ends it, he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, what does he mean by that? Now, basically, what he means is you could basically 
Take a yellow tablet, your Sharpie marker, run a line down through the tablet, title the left-hand column, love God, title the right-hand column, love my neighbor, and then you can do your research, and if you can find 613 laws or however many laws you find, you will always be able to categorize them in one of two columns. You will either be able to write it down in the love God column. In other words, that command is given to me to know how to love God and to relate vertically to God. Or it will fall in a category horizontally of how am I going to get along with my fellow man. All commands, all instruction in the Bible can go into those two categories. And so our Lord is giving an answer that really is an all-encompassing answer. This is the most important law, but all laws either teach us to love God or teach us to love our fellow man, our neighbor. I want you also to see back up in verse 37, the scope of this is also referenced in the idea, uh, and and you, you fill in the word all for me when we get to it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Three times he emphasizes all. All, I heard someone say once, all means all, and that's all all means. (laughs) There's no real wiggle room there, is there? This is an all-encompassing, permeating command. You're to be all about this. This is the scope of it. It's everything about us. Our time has already fled, and I really wanted to get to point four, and I wanted us to kind of camp on point four, and we'll pick it up maybe next week. Let me fill in the blanks for you, though, and summarize what we want to say. We'll back up and take another run at it next week. But if the Lord looks at us, and he looks at the Pharisees, and, he, and Matthew records for us that our Lord has told us the number one command that you can keep in your life is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is second law, like unto it. Don't you think we ought to spend some time asking ourselves, what does that really look like? What does it really mean to love the Lord my God with that scope of thoroughness? You see, I don't think that Jesus is giving a lesson on the parts of humankind. You know, people argue, are we a trichotomy? Are we a dichotomy? Are we body, soul, and spirit? Uh, Are we mind, will, and emotions? And what are we? I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about at all. I think what Jesus is talking about is he's saying that everything about you, your mind, your body, your emotions, every fiber of you, every part of your life, all Love the Lord your God with all that you are from the deepest part of the core of your being, your heart, to your decision-making processes, to the strength of your day. Mark added the word strength. That you would love the Lord your God with all of that, every part of you. He's talking about this all-encompassing love. What does that kind of love look like? Do I evidence that in my life is the question. Let me just summarize and fill in the blanks quickly and let you know that you need to know that that kind of love, letter A, and obedience are inseparable. So if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and might and strength, then you need to know that you are also committed to obedience and that the two are inseparable. 
You're going to see that in those verses. You can look them up yourself. But for example, John 14, 21 says, he who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love them. Love for God and obedience to his command go hand in hand. You know, lots of us, we kind of figure out our own system, don't we? We can say we love the Lord with our lips. We can talk about it. We talk a good game, but living it out. It reminded me of a little story that was told about Mark Twain. Um, Sam Clemens, the author Mark Twain was his pen name, encountered a ruthless businessman from Boston during his travels who boasted that nobody ever got in his way once he determined to do something. And he said to Mark Twain, before I die, I mean to take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and I'm going to climb Mount Sinai. And when I get up there, I'm going to read the Ten Commandments aloud at the top of my voice. They said Mark Twain was unimpressed and he just replied, I got a better idea. Stay in Boston and just keep them. (laughs) And we can talk all we want, but our proof of our love for God is in our obedience, isn't it? They're inseparable. Number two, this kind of love and the world are incompatible. This kind of love, that love that is all-encompassing, that love that is described as, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind and might, that is incompatible with the world. First John 2.15 says that anybody who has a love for the world like that, the love of the Father is not in them. So then that opens up a whole conversation of, what does it mean to love the world and everything that is not anti that is not Christ-like thirdly we need to know that related to the end of his teaching the second command this kind of love with no heart for people is impossible this kind of love with no heart for people is impossible in other words to say you love God and then you despise your fellow man or you despise a brother or sister in Christ or you don't meet their needs John says, the love of God is not in you. You see your brother in need and you don't respond to that need, the love of God is not in you. Don't say you love God if you don't care about people. And as a matter of fact, what happens is, as you find yourself growing in love with God, you will care about people. It's part of the authenticating evidence of my salvation. Really, all three of these are evidences of salvation. My love for God demonstrated in obedience my love for God demonstrated in my disdain for this world. I see Drew back there and one day he came walking up to me and he said, I just can't wait to go to heaven. I said, what do you mean? He said, I am so sick of the sin, the world, the dirt, the mire. Thirdly, evidence of my salvation is my love for people. Why does this really matter? It really matters. You've got you to gotta separate the egg from the white, the yolk from the white. Well, this passage really matters because isn't this, number one, the clear, confident voice of authority? This is Jesus looking at us saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Secondly, this is the declaration now of my life, purpose, and priority. If Jesus tells me this is the number one command that I can keep, and it also summarizes the keeping of all the other commands of God, it better become the priority of my life. 
But what are we experts at? We are experts at talking the game. We're experts at looking good. But we need to evaluate what our integrity and this very command, number three, is the driving force of my spiritual integrity because I no longer, as I love God, will tolerate a hollow, worm-bit, duplicitous core of my being. I will be for real. My spiritual integrity will be sound as I love God. Listen, all of this only takes place at the cross where we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's where he gives us a growing love for his Father. That's where he gives us a disdain for this world. That's where he gives us a love for people. It's all of his gospel at work in us. We're going to have to pick this up and, like I say, make another run at it. I'm sure the Lord has more here for us. Katie, thanks for sharing your testimony. His mansion, thanks for being here. Let's stand together and let's close in prayer with our heads bowed. Maybe just one question to conclude. You know, if somebody broke you open and was able somehow to get to the core of your being and they were able to check out the fiber, the fabric, the the molecular structure of your life, so to speak, would they see that all of you loves God? Are you playing games? Do you have hidden secrets? Back in the upper shelf, backroom closet of your life, do you have a little box where you keep things that are your special little things of the world, the flesh, that Satan uses to defeat you? It's got to go. As we love God, all that stuff changes. What is it that we would find? Would we be able to put you under a spiritual microscope and say, yep, this is real stuff. This spiritual integrity is sound. He loves or she loves the Lord, his or her God, with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, with all of his might. Ask God to show you yourself. Ask God to reveal who you really are before him to you to begin a new work a refreshing work of sanctification in your life. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you. We are grateful for your word. It challenges us. It changes us. It's upsetting some. It is a mirror. It tells us the truth when we look into it about ourselves. Use it to transform us into the image of Christ that we might love you, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors ourselves. We commit ourselves to you this first day of the new week. We commit this week to you. We don't know what it will hold. And we just dedicate it to you and ask that we would walk in your steps and that you would guide and direct us every step of the way in Jesus' name. Amen.